fear of failure and how to turn failure into success and how to turn failure into gratitude and how to turn failure into a growth that you maybe didn't even know that you needed. Uh, and, and really the last two weeks we focused on the need uh, to be aware that God gives us a spirit of courage and not of timidity and he invites us to get off the sidelines and into the arena. That we're called to be people who do things and make a difference. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at it from a slightly different perspective. What happens in life when you're going along and, and you have a massive monumental failure? You're the one that messes up. You're the one uh, who's done something wrong. And whether that's you've sinned and done something wrong, or you've had a moral lapse, or you've just been on the wrong side of an argument, uh, which is a way of saying maybe you got married. Um, getting married is the best way to get on the wrong side of lots and lots of arguments. Um, and, and you've messed up. You've had a failure in your life, and now you need to do something as a result of that failure so that you can receive the benefits that are there. Because that's what, what we've really been looking at failure is an opportunity to make something in your life better as a result of the failure you've experienced, trusting that God has something better for you on the other side. But when you're in that moment where you know you've messed up, how do you get past it? And we could go for inspiration to the very first failures in the Bible uh, and look at the story of Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. And they both did something they knew they were not supposed to do. And, and in the wake of that, when God shows up and he says, hey, have you guys done something wrong? Their response is what? Well, I mean, she gave it to me and you gave her to me. And, the, and she says, well, the serpent told me that I should do this. And, and, and Eve blames Adam and Adam blames Eve. And, and someone even blames God at some point. Everyone is blaming everyone else and no one's taking responsibility. Uh, it's like when your kids get in trouble, right? And you're like, whose fault is this? And your kids look at you and they're like, well, they told me I should. And you're the one that gave birth to us in the first place. It's your fault, right? Really insightful stuff. That's what God gets to experience in the very first failure of these creatures that he's made. They start blaming each other. They don't take responsibility. One of the things that I get to do, uh, I, I, go, I still go direct our Camp Rock Creek session, our third through eighth grade camp session. Um, I used to do it because I was the youth minister and it was my job here. Um, and I enjoyed camp, but now I get to choose to go. And I enjoy it so much more when I'm choosing to be there and I don't have to be there. But the other thing that's really changed at Camp Rock Creek is, is now I've been a dad for 10 years. And I know a lot more now than I did 12 years ago before I had kids. Uh, youth ministry used to be about connecting with the kids very relationally. Now I've got old man wisdom on my side. <laughs> kids come to me and they're acting up and they're, they're misbehaving. And as a young youth minister, you're kind of like, oh, what am I going to do? I've got to figure out how to punish these kids. Now they come up and they disbehave, uh, misbehave and I'm like, oh, I've seen this one before. This isn't new. This is not my first rodeo. I know things that you need to know, so sit down and listen. And you get to give them old man wisdom, and it's so much fun. And one of my favorite old man lessons, and it happens almost once every year. Uh, it didn't happen this year. Uh, we had a really, really good session. But, but normally, at some point in the week, the boys just all start acting up. And, and you go and you ask them, why are you doing this? And they say really brilliant things like, I didn't do that. I watched you hit that kid. I didn't hit that kid. 
And the other kid is sitting there crying, like, he hit me. And I'm like, I know, I saw it. I didn't hit him. And you're like, well, I, I don't know what to do about this. So, well, or maybe they'll say, I, I did hit them, but it's not my fault that I hit them. Or, or they started it, or they deserved it. Or uh, it's not fair that I'm getting punished and they're not. And, and about midweek, once I've heard any number of those excuses for about the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth times, uh, we get to the end of the night, we finish our Starlight Devo, and we send the girls off to bed because the girls are so good. And I say, boys, stay here. We're going to have some old man wisdom. And I tell them, I said, get in here. I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm going to give you a key that if you will listen to this, it will help you to make more money someday. You will have a better job. You will not get fired as many times. If you choose to get married, you will have a better marriage. If you choose to have children, you will be a better parent. If you will never say these three things, do you want to know what they are? Yes. That's what they say. And I just tell them, if you cannot say these three things, your whole life will be better. Here's the three things. It's not my fault. They started it, and that's not fair. If you can learn to not say those three things, you're going to be so much more successful in life. And when I say it's not fair, I don't mean that's not just. When there's injustice in the world, we as God's people should push back against that. What I mean is what we all know, if you've had a, a three-year-old living in your house for even like a day, is that's not fair. That's a different thing. And it's sad when you hear it in the voice of a grown-up. That's not fair. And they started it. It's not my fault. Sounds familiar in a child's voice, but when you hear it in a grown-up's voice, it's so much less becoming. And it's our job as parents to teach our kids to stop saying those things. To teach our kids to take ownership and responsibility for when they do things wrong. A lot of times, if, if you're parenting and you're like, I don't know what to do, I, here's my advice, take it or leave it, I don't know. On this matter, I don't have a word from the Lord, but I offer it to you as one who maybe is worthy of saying something. Uh, I find that if you just say what these things back to your kids, they kind of figure out that it's fake too. Uh, that's not fair. That's not fair, is it? And all of a sudden they kind of go, oh yeah. You know, that, it's not my fault. Oh, it's not your fault. Oh, it is my fault. You know, just talk to them, teach them, take these opportunities. And then when you hear yourself saying it, hear yourself and learn from these opportunities. We talked some last week about David in, in the book of Samuel. We're going to be looking at it again today, David and Saul, and comparing them. Uh, but first we need to go to James 5.16, where James is writing, and he says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed, because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James is writing, and he says, Listen, in your relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, confess your sins to each other. And then pray for each other and help each other to get healthy. And, and I think he envisions in here that you get healthy in your body, but you also get healthy in your spirit when you're willing to be honest with each other about your failings. And when we think about confession, what we so often think about is we go to someone that we trust and we say, hey, I need to tell you about a sin that I've committed because if, if I just tell you about it, getting rid of the secrecy and the shame can help to begin cleansing me of this. 
If I can bring this, this sin out of the darkness and into the light, the light is going to begin to clean it up. And your knowing about it and holding me accountable is going to help me get out of this sin trap. We get that side of confession. But there's a, a, a little bit of soul work that happens before you get to the opening your mouth part of confession. This part of soul work where we, before you go to someone and say, I need to tell you about a failure that I've had in my life, you first have to take responsibility for it. The reality is that the, taking responsibility for your mistakes is necessary for confession to even be on the table. Because if you're just giving excuses and blaming others, you're never going to get to the point that you tell someone else, I've got a problem and I've done something wrong. You're just going to say, well, it's not my fault. It wasn't fair that I have to do that and other people don't. I, it's not, you know, they started it, I just finished it. Well, if you can't get past excuses and blame, you're never going to get to confession. And it begins to become a cancer in your, your soul that prevents you from being a healthy person, which is what James is calling all of us to do when he invites us to confession and prayer with one another. But back to Saul and David with that understanding that if we can't take responsibility, we can't ever get healthy. Saul is, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 5 through 14, we come to this story where, where Saul has uh, started picking little fights with the Philistines, and now the Philistines have brought this whole huge army to the field. It says that Saul was... 30 years old when he became king. He's going to reign for like 50-something years. Uh, but here in verse 5 it says, The Philistines now assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. And when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, "'Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings.' And Saul offered up the burnt offering." Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. For all time, he tells him. And we need a little bit of background here because it almost seems, if you're just reading this, like, what, what's the big deal with Samuel? What did Saul do that was so bad? Didn't he seek the Lord's favor? before going into battle. But there's a couple things that you need to understand here. One is that Saul had been told, kings do not offer the offerings, prophets and priests do. Right. 
This is not your job to offer the sacrifice to God. And Saul sees his men scattering. And Saul sees the army that's in front of him. And Saul is stricken by fear that he won't be able to hold the army together to win this battle if he doesn't go through the rites of petitioning God to manipulate God to give him the victory that God will give them if he just goes through the motions. And what's really happening here is that Saul is questioning God's timing and is confident that if he just pushes the right buttons, that God will give him what he wants. If Saul really understood that when Samuel arrives, he'll give the offering, and that with God's blessing, we can win a great battle, he wouldn't care how many soldiers were still there. He would have confidence that with however many soldiers God has in my army, when Samuel arrives and gives the sacrifice, it's enough to defeat this army of Philistines. But he doubts God, and he feels like he can manipulate God by going through the motions of faith. And he's not obedient, and yet he offers sacrifice. <clears throat> sacrifice without obedience is not what God desires. And so Saul is told the kingdom that could have been yours forever will now be taken from you and given to another and this isn't the only time that we see Saul do this. If you turn over a couple of chapters to, to chapter 15, Saul is again struggling to be obedient to God. Uh, where are we going to pick up here? Verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. If you don't remember the story in Exodus, Israel is just a wandering people uh, with their, their sheep and their traveling camp, and they come out of Egypt into the wilderness, and the Amalekites unprovoked attack them from behind. And God in that moment says, a day will come when I will get my vengeance on the Amalekites for taking advantage of my people in the wilderness. Well, this is the culmination of that that curse. And he says, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites move away from the Amalekites. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hivala to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Saul gets a word from God to go destroy this people that tried to take advantage of Israel in the wilderness. And when he goes to do it, and, and I don't want to get into the ethics of, of, of war and battle and everything here, that's a really, very meaningful conversation for another time. But what is clear is that this country has become viewed by God as being evil, 
and in need of destruction. And he tells Saul, when you wipe them out, wipe them out completely. Saul understands that instruction, and he goes there, and instead of wiping them out completely, what he does is he goes and he keeps the king alive, which is a way that you increase your own honor, and then he keeps the best of the sheep and the livestock for himself and with his soldiers, and then they march off. And the story keeps going in verse 10, and it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. He cried out to the Lord all that night. And early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Before I give you Saul's response, I've got to tell you a story. This is another youth ministry story. Back when I had first started working here, we had a young teen that was visiting. And, and, and I had left my watch while we were playing basketball up against the wall in the gym. And, and this was a watch that I had, my, my dad had given me. It's a very special watch. And so when the game ended and I went over to the wall to retrieve my watch and it was gone, I was just, I was so upset and so disappointed. This is a Wednesday. So after that, we go down, I go to teach my class, and in walks this teen wearing my watch. And I said, I think, oh, I said, oh, I'm so happy. You found my lost watch. And he goes, I sure did. I found it. In fact, you're welcome. And I go, what? You're wearing a watch that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. He goes, I know. I was afraid some of these other kids were going to steal it. So I was protecting it for you. <laughs> well, thank you. Can I have it back? I would be so upset if someone tried to steal my watch. He says, I know. I would too. You're welcome. He gave me my watch back. We went on to have a pretty, surprisingly, pretty good relationship. So Saul says, I followed the Lord's instructions. Samuel, no dummy, says, that's weird. I hear a lot of sheep and cattle. And Saul answered, uh, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. He says, listen, we, we didn't steal these sheep and cows. We were protecting them for God. You're welcome. This is, this is that crazy of a moment that Saul and Samuel are experiencing right here. And so Samuel sees right through it. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. And Samuel said, even though you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. I did what he said. 
I destroyed them and brought back someone, which is, by the way, disobedience. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of that what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And it's only then, it's only then that in verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. It's only after all of this, after he continues to cover himself and defend himself and say, I've followed the instructions while clearly being in disobedience. After all of this, is when he says, okay, fine. And it's worth noting that that Samuel along the way learns that Saul did give honor to someone for the great victory that he received when he stopped at Carmel and built a monument to himself in his honor because of what he had received. And Samuel says, don't you remember when you were small in your eyes and God anointed you as the king and now you think you're the big deal and you're the one worthy of worship? You've got a problem and God's going to bring down your kingdom and your throne as a result of it and give it to another. Because you won't take responsibility for your actions. Enter David, the one who will take over the kingdom David has also done many great things, and he's known after one who is a man after God's own heart. But David has his own big sin problems and failures, too. The most famous of them, of course, is his interaction with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So in the spring, in the time when kings go out to war, David stayed home. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked out around the roof on the palace, which is not a time that a really good and active king gets out of bed. It's evening, but he's up on the roof of his palace, lazing around, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself. This is important to how we often misunderstand much of the story. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. You need to understand, we often, in art, uh, Bathsheba is portrayed as bathing in some really nice bathtub on the roof of her nice house that's somewhere below David, like she's trying to provoke him. Um, That's not what's happening in this story. Uh, For one, there are not ancient Israelite personal private bathtubs mounted on roofs where you go and do your purification rites. There's a communal washing space where you would go and you would wash. And I know Bill has talked before about times when he would be in India and there are public bathing areas and you go and you do your bathing there and it is the obligation of those who are nearby to not look upon those who are doing the bathing. That's what's going on here in ancient Israel. She's doing the right thing and purifying herself according to the custom and the purification laws of Israel and he is putting his eyes where they do not belong. 
She's not the seductress here. And it's not to say that as the story goes on, she doesn't have moments where she takes advantage of different situations that present themselves. But in this moment, David's looking at something he's not supposed to be looking at when he's somewhere he's not supposed to be doing things he shouldn't be doing. And he sends for her to do things that he has the power to do and she doesn't have the power to stop. That's where this story starts. And now Bathsheba's pregnant and her husband's away and it's very clear to everyone that her husband didn't do it. And so now he's got a problem and the cover-up becomes worse than the crime as he then summons Uriah. Uriah, a person of integrity, won't do anything while his men are in the field. And so David sends him with a letter that says, hey, military commanders, please read this. Send me to the front of the battle lines and retreat so I get killed and maintain the cover-up for our king who didn't come out to war when kings go out to war and slept in his bed till evening and put his eyes where they didn't belong. That's the beginning of this story. So after that all takes place, chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan, who is the prophet who has now replaced Samuel to the king of Israel. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to this rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Saul at this point would have had all kinds of excuses, all kinds of defenses, all kinds of reasons that it wasn't his fault that he did what he did. Here's what David said to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. I have done what I should not have done. And it didn't mean that he doesn't face the consequences. It does mean that he's given forgiveness. God does forgive him for what he's done and the responsibility that he's taken makes a difference in that way, but he's not exempt from the consequences of what he did wrong. But he's beginning to step into the opportunity to grow through failure because he took ownership for his failure and mistake where Saul would not. So Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Consequences are still there when we fail, but there's an opportunity 
for us to grow through these things, to respond in gratitude to these moments if we're willing to take responsibility and confess, I have sinned against the Lord. And so David, who is this psalmist and poet, writes Psalm 51, and and much of it was read earlier. I want to read through a little bit of it again to hear just how much David owns his mistakes and how much he's blessed through all of this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And the note that's right here in Psalm 51 is worth noting. This is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we skip a whole lot of pages in our Bibles to get to Psalm 51, but we don't skip much time. The distance between I have sinned against the Lord and the writing of Psalm 51 is incredibly short. And David writes this, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And here's here's the part we read earlier. Here's the rest of this psalm. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He says, God, if you give me forgiveness when I took responsibility for what I did wrong, I'm going to go tell other people that they should take responsibility and that you'll forgive them so that sinners will turn from their ways because you allowed me to turn from mine. That out of David's failure is an opportunity not just for his growth, but to help other people in their growth. Just deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. You'll remember that Samuel tells Saul, God desires obedience more than sacrifice. You keep giving sacrifices at at the expense of your obedience. Here's what David says in the contrary. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David says this, I know that if I have a broken and repentant heart that that's the sacrifice you desire. And it's out of that owning of his failure that, that David truly becomes the man after God's own heart, the one who is desiring what God desires and not his own honor and his own benefit. So that even then, may it please you to prosper Zion, David writes, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, In burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered in your altar. 
David says, listen, God, I know that what you desire more than the sacrifices of the extra bulls and the, the livestock and everything else is our broken hearts that are obedient to you. And once we do that and you allow us to turn from our sins and our failures and our mistakes, then you can strengthen our city to your benefit and your glory. And that's when we'll offer the sacrifices that are going to mean so much to you because it comes from righteous, obedient, contrite people. It's important to live lives that are confessional to God and to one another, but you can't get there if your mouth and your mind are filled with lies like it's not my fault, it's not fair, they started it. You have to begin confession from a place of humility in owning your failures. And it's only in owning your failures and taking responsibility that you can then cry out to God, I know you desire repentance before sacrifice, and I'm going to give it to you so that you'll love my sacrifice later. And that the things that I offer you and the things that I give you will make all the difference in the world. And the great blessing and benefit that we have today as Christians, as those who are in Jesus Christ, is that we know we're already forgiven in advance for all the things that we do wrong. Yes. Our failures are not held against us. So it's even easier for us to say, Jesus, I've messed up. I take responsibility for the things that I've done wrong. I know that you've forgiven me. So now I'm going to confess and repent and walk away from that stuff and live a life that's a living sacrifice to you. So here's the thing. If you've got a job, if you've got a spouse, if you've got kids, if you've got parents, and you're wondering, how can I be more successful in my life? Don't ever say, it's not my fault. I didn't start it. It's not fair. Instead, look at God and say, God, I own my failures, and I allow you to take the glory for setting me back on solid footing and solid ground and for saving me so that I can have success, gratitude, and growth. Because I trust that when I own my stuff, you're going to pull me through it and bless me as a result. And I'll tell others so that they can come through it too. This morning I'm telling you, I've failed before. And God's brought me through it. And if today you need to own your stuff and repent and turn away from all that, Jesus is ready to forgive you and set you on solid footing too. So that you can tell others about all that God has done for you. If you need to respond this morning, please come forward and do so as we stand and sing.